There's a belief that to have positive career progression, you need to occasionally move organisations. We're about to prove that wrong by hearing from someone who has not only progressed to a senior leadership role in the organisation with which they started their career, but also studied for their degree there too. Welcome to Half Hour Mentor. My name is Ian Cleverdon and welcome to the fourth episode of the series in which I talk to notable figures from a variety of different backgrounds with a view to supporting you in your personal and professional development. Today, my guest is Professor Hannah Holmes, Dean of Manchester Metropolitan University Business School and Deputy Pro-Vice-Chancellor of the Business School's Faculty of Business and Law. Hannah studied economics at ManMet and ended up joining the university as an associate lecturer, having studied for a master's degree at the other well-regarded Mancunian higher education establishment, University of Manchester. You can find this series on all major streaming platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify, to name but three. Be sure to click on the follow or subscribe button to make sure you don't miss out on future episodes. It'd also be great if you could rate and review the podcast as it really helps me understand how they're being received and do spread the word with your friends and your colleagues if you're enjoying them. You can also provide feedback and learn about future episodes on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook by searching for Half Hour Mentor. So let's hear about Hannah's fascinating career journey. I started by asking her about her very first job. Well, the first place I worked was a fish and chip shop. (laughs) I grew up in Southport, so it's kind of a rite of passage that you have to work in the arcades or the sweet shops or the joke shop or the chip shop. So um, I started working in in the ice cream part of the fish and chip shop. Um, Had been a a bit naughty and perhaps not entirely truthful about my age because I was desperate to work. So I'd knocked a few months off to get me to be 14. because I just really, really wanted to go to work at the weekend. So I worked there Saturday, Sunday. Um, and that was the first thing that I did. And I was really lucky. The people that owned the chip shop were really lovely. Um, I enjoyed I enjoyed working there. I enjoyed when I got old enough to be allowed to go and like cook the chips and serve well, the chips. But, but why, why a fish and chip shop at that early age? I don't know. You know, my very first thing I wanted to do was work in a bar because I thought it looked so exciting. <laughs> just so much stuff going on behind um I don't know I think it was just those were the types of jobs that existed for teenagers when I was younger where I lived that was what you know if you worked a Saturday job at that age cafe restaurant work ice cream shops in Southport that was kind of the jobs that were there yeah so Southport being a a, it's a seaside resort for people who don't know so lots of tourists in the summer yeah and so yeah very much a a, a summer job if you like but can go all the way through and we would get coach tours of um people coming to visit Southport for the for the day and my job would be to run from the the fish and chip shop over to wait the people coming off the bus and hand them their discounts for the <laughs> for their right. chips from us for the day. And was that something you wanted to do in <laughs> meeting the people you got forced to do? Um, I did. It was just one of those things. I think as I got older, I started to become a bit more aware that um, the uniform had kind of a cap and overalls. And I think as I got kind of towards 16, 17, I started to think... Maybe I don't want to be stood in the street dressed like this, handing out flyers and ice creams and chips. But at the time, I just used to just, you know, it was part of the job. I liked the people I worked with. Um, so, yeah, it was... And, and and actually, the people that would come in, you know, they were on holiday, so they were all generally quite happy. Yeah. 
Great. Well, let's zoom up a little bit then to university. So where did you go? What did you study? Why? I had thought that I might like to work at the Foreign Office when I was like 17, 18. I'd started to think that might be what I'd like to do. So I chose to study economics. Um, I came to Manchester Met to study. I genuinely would like to tell you that that was a really well thought out, planned, you know, that, that I did lots of thinking and visiting, but it wasn't really. I was dating somebody who was in their second year here. <laughs> <laughs> um, I got made an offer, it, um, but it was the absolutely the best decision that I could have made. I mean, the circumstances as to why I made it, I just think must have been fate because when I came to university, I just felt like I I was able to kind of not reinvent myself, but become who I wanted to be. And you didn't have the Southport's quite small. Um, I had a really close group of friends there who I'm still friends with now, who all you know went on have gone on to do good things. But you know you can just become a bit more who you want to be. So. Manchester gave me lots of opportunities. The university was kind of perfect for me in terms of the level of support that you got from staff, the interest of the subjects. Then when I'd finished, I did work throughout the whole time I was here. So I'd moved my job from a shop called Richards, which is closed now, um, in Southport. I moved to work in Manchester with the company. They closed, so then I worked at Next. So I worked right through my studies. And then after I'd finished my first degree, I went to work at um, DKNY because at that point I had applied for the Foreign Office but I didn't get through um, the tests and looking back I should have just kind of you know done some more understanding of the way the tests work and gone and done it again but I didn't I didn't have that kind of environment where people could guide me in that way so I know now that one, the university career services are much more advanced and that they would help prepare students much more, but, but it wasn't like that, you know, when I was a student 20 years ago. And my family, you know, are fantastic, but again, they wouldn't be able to talk me through kind of what to do to prepare for it, so I just went in cold. And then what to do if you're not successful in terms of keep on trying. So I just gave up on that when I didn't, I didn't pass uh, the first time. And then I got a job at DKNY because I'd always worked in retail. So it's just, I just applied for retail positions. My intention was to do that while I decided what I wanted to do. And I was thinking about a job in merchandising. So I thought I might move to London and work in merchandising. So I had some interviews and one day I was sat on the train going back and I just looked out the window and thought, I just don't even like London, really. I don't know why I'm coming for interviews here when I don't really kind of particularly want to live here. So I carried on working at DKNY, had a chance encounter with a fashion lecturer who works worked at the time here at Manchester Met. And she was kind of saying, what, what is it that you want to do? And I genuinely didn't know, but I just thought, I just need to do something with economics because I really miss it. I just miss, I miss kind of, you know, that, the way that you explore concepts and ideas. And so I, I, just, I remember saying to her, I don't know, but I really miss economics. And that was probably quite a change in my own perception of myself because I think right through to that point, I'd never admitted that I quite liked education. I'd always just kind of gone through education and it was just something that you did because you had to do it. But at that <coughs> stage, you were uh, 
you were sort of the, the customer of education at yeah. that stage. So with liking it, what was it about education that you liked at that stage? I think it was the first time that I admitted that I enjoyed the intellectual challenge of the education brought because I used to just, you know, I wanted to go out, I wanted to fit with my friends. That wasn't like, that wasn't the cool thing to do. So I, I, I mean, I remember basically accepting that I was a bit of a geek and then I got a bit comfortable with saying to other people, like, well, I just actually, I do quite like studying. I like learning. <laughs> I like reading. I like, you know, kind of having conversations that are challenging conversations in terms of um, intellectually disagreeing on things. But I'd never admitted that before to myself. I'd always just kind of thought, oh, you know, that's for that's for like really clever people or... Um, not people like me so then I spoke to this lady and I, I said and I said oh, I'd love to do like what you do and she said you like you can and I was like I could never do something like that and this was the lecturer that you she, met yeah she was just a customer <laughs> oh customer in the shop yeah right okay. she used to come in not regular but semi-regular in it DKMY you had your own customers and she was my customer so if she came in the shop I would serve her so after that conversation, I decided I was going to go back and do a master's. Again, I didn't put massive thoughts into it. I just thought, well, I'm in Manchester. I'll go to Manchester. You need to do a master's. Um, so I applied. I applied very late. I what, what was your master's in? Economics. So, so I did an MSc in economics. Um, so I went to University of Manchester. Got, I got a place. I, I left work. I took out a loan. Um... It, that was really hard. My master's was difficult. I'd done a BA and I'd gone on to do an MSc. And as I say, I hadn't properly researched. So, you know, the level of quantitative um, demands in the MSc was, was different to my BA. But anyway, I was, you know, I, I passed it. I did, I did uh, well in some of my units. I got the highest grades in the, on the course, not the quants ones. <laughs> <laughs> but things like political economy and financial economics you know, I did really, really well in them and in my dissertation. And I made some great friends on that course. Then at that stage, I, w I was still pursuing this thing of one day I would like to be a lecturer because I get to use my economics and um, I get to do it all the time. Like, I think that was the thing. If I was teaching economics, I could, I could be involved with it every day. And um, I, so then I went and did a teaching qualification thinking that to become a lecturer you needed to be much older and have loads of experience to be able to even be considered so I did a teaching qualification um, again at University of Manchester and that was aged 14 to 19 so business education um, it doesn't start till the GCSE year and then it goes up into further education so I did my teaching qualification past that and I was having a conversation with the then deputy head of the economics department because I'd popped in to see them and talking about how one day I'd love to be a lecturer and that was but I was going to go and do this first and get my experience and then they said you know about these part-time opportunities where you basically brought in to deliver on areas where they might have gaps or you've got a particular expertise so um, associate lecturers is what they're known as and it gives you a chance to gain some experience but you're not 
fully employed as on a on a kind of full contract and was this at the time that you were doing your teacher training they offered it me while I was doing my teacher training so I had an interview so by the time I'd finished my teacher training I knew that I was going to start in September then I went away for a period a few months traveling and when I came back the amount of work they were asking me to do had had increased um and so I had unit leadership responsibility on two units, um, but I, I I absolutely threw myself in. So I re- after the first year, I rewrote all the course. Um, <laughs> so it surprised people that know me. <laughs> like I rewrote the course, I rewrote the assessments, um, and you know I really enjoyed it, and I really enjoyed working with the students and seeing how I could get them more involved, perform better. One of the courses I taught on was foundation year, and that was one of the best things that the then head of department did. So he purposefully um, put me on a unit where the teaching was outside of the department as well as inside, so I was exposed to more people. And back then, the foundation year was run by another faculty outside of the one I was in so again I met people from right across the university and those people are you know some of them are still here now and at various stages of my career they've helped me so rather than me only knowing kind of 16 people in my own department I knew lots of people that's one of the best things that was ever done to me I have tried to do that with other people when I've been in leadership positions how has that then gone on to what you're doing now I suppose so we've talked about you've you've rewrote some of the courses you really immersed yourself (laughs) in it where did it go from there and uh, at that point? So we started to see improvements in the units where I was teaching. So the metrics had improved. One of the courses was an option on the foundation year and we used to get lots of students switching away from economics because it can be quite challenging. But then the reverse started happening. Students were switching into economics so we were getting more students coming through because they'd been able to feel inspired by it. Um, so then I was moved into a lecturer's position. So I was full-time... Um, employed by the university to deliver at lecturer grade. I mean, one of the the key differences is really um, you don't get paid 12 months a year, you get paid when you work. It was salaried, so there was that. And also it meant I could get involved in even more things. So not just kind of within my unit. I was desperate to be involved in things where I thought things could be improved. And at the time, I thought it would be incredible if one day I became a year tutor. Like, that was where I thought, you know, it would be amazing. A, what does a year tutor involve? So they look after a cohort. So we have three years, and they would look after a cohort of students and kind of make sure that their experience is good, their induction, that the units are running well. And I, that was my ambition, to be a year tutor. Uh, why? I just think I thought that I could... I, I, well I thought that that was an incredibly kind of senior position for a start Um, I don't know I just thought that I would be able to have a it would be great to get your teeth into it and there was things that I could see that if you did it differently it would be better you know like if you just changed the way you inducted the students or we got all the staff to be a bit more collaborative with each other and then the student experience would be better and so I think I saw it as a way to be able to have some influence over what was happening in the programme. So I became a year tutor um, after a couple of years and I was first year tutor and um, again, I, I, I changed their induction. I changed, I brought the teams together more. So the unit teams were kind of working together 
around what, what was happening in their units and the students. Um, we had a programme review at that period and I, I was quite involved in that. I would support with lots of other things like open days and visit days, anything that I could get involved in. I was really keen to be involved. Mm-hmm. Um, so I worked through those grades and eventually was um, the top of the band to become a senior lecturer. And I guess one of the differences there is around kind of the expectation and the level of responsibility that you might be given. And um, during that period as well, I'd done my PhD. So I started my PhD when I was a lecturer. It took a while. (laughs) I finished it though. It took six years part-time. And so I had my PhD as well. And I did take a bit of a gamble when I was doing my PhD a little bit because I could have taken a step back from the amount of um, things I was getting involved in to focus on doing my PhD quicker. One, I couldn't help myself. Like, I just can't help kind of wanting to be involved in things and wanting to feel like I'm contributing. And so it's quite, it was a challenge for me to just kind of ignore things that I would see that I think, oh, I'd really love to be involved in that and say no, and hard to say no. But also I thought, if I can manage to juggle the two things and do my PhD in an acceptable time, part-time, whilst also building up my experience, and at the end I could be in quite a strong position because I would have good experience at work and also my PhD. And that could have gone really badly wrong because if I hadn't done my PhD as a consequence of the things I was taking on, then that would have been terrible. What's happened more recently in terms of your development from that and the role that you're doing now? Um, So my role now is um, Dean of Business School and Deputy Faculty Pro Vice-Chancellor. So Deputy Pro Vice-Chancellor for Business and Law, um, it's essentially quite an operational role, um, supporting the Pro Vice-Chancellor for the faculty to enable his vision, um, which we do, you know, collectively work on, both me and him and also uh, the wider faculty executive group and, and others in the faculty through consultations and so on. But essentially a lot of my role is enabling that strategy through making sure we've got the right resources, people are doing the right things, um, that our teams are working effectively, so I'll focus around development. I do try to focus around kind of the the feel of the place. So, you know, do people feel valued? Are we recognising and celebrating people? Um, And then the business school is triple accredited, so um, we have ACSB, Equus and Amber, which recognise the quality of the organisation, but they're like huge audits. Mm. And um, and that's a great accolade to have as well. It is a great accolade. So we're one of only 22 in the UK and around 120 globally. However, it's a lot of work. Mm. Um, and it's a really meaningful work in the sense that it really makes you interrogate absolutely everything you do and make sure that it genuinely is very, very good. Um, but there's a lot of work involved in that. So again, in my Dean's role, um, that, that's kind of one of the key things that I have responsibility for, for the business school. It's interesting you say it's operational role that you do, but it feels from your description it's quite cultural yeah. as well. Yeah, so I think, I, I do think that that's just because that's the way I think I operate. So um, when I lead our faculty operations group, you know, we will be thinking about, well, this is what we need to do but what's that going to feel like in reality what's that going to look like and where we're aware that it's not going to be great what we're going to do about that can we tweak it a bit or do we need to have some honest conversations to say you know 
this this is going to not be the 100% ideal we would like, but these are the reasons we're doing it. Um, I've introduced an Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Committee which um, to make sure that we're embedding the university principles in the faculty, but also recognising our own kind of diversity and celebrating that. So currently, we've got a strong imbalance between the number of female professors and male professors. Um, we don't have good representation in our leadership teams from diverse groups. So I'm really keen that we make sure we address those things because they are really important to me that the organisation I work in has those types of values and that they're, you know, that they can be seen in not just words, that actually people look that we are reflective of what we're saying. Some listeners to this podcast will be thinking, you went to Manchester Met, <laughs> you did your degree there, and you've carried on working for the same organisation that you studied at all this time. What's attracted you to work for the same organisation, would you say? Because a lot will be listening to this, perhaps thinking, I'm working for a particular company, I need a change, I need to move. Some of the guests that I've had on the podcast have worked for many different organisations. So what is it that's attracted you to stay with the same organisation? Um, well, I haven't done the same job for more than four years at a time. I've worked here um, since 2005, you know, as an associate lecturer for two years, lecturer for five years, senior lecturer for five years. And then um, within those, I did lots of different things. So I took on different units. I was a year tutor. That makes your day different, the sorts of things you deal with. Uh, I was a head of programs for economics, then a professional and commercial, then deputy head, then head, and and now I have this role. So actually, I feel as if I've, you know, I've changed my job a lot, and some of the roles are quite well, really different. So even at the same, I took a sideways step purposefully. I'd been program leader for economics for four years. I genuinely felt like I'd made that program everything I wanted it to be by staying. In that role I was going to start to be detrimental to the students and the staff because that's how I thought the program should be and it needed someone else to come in with fresh eyes and see the problems um, which is what I had been able to do when I went in you know I'd come in and said well I've got I'm gonna put my mark on this wow I think we could do better but I think after a period of time once you've been able to implement your vision actually you should move on so I took a professional and commercial programs role, which it was, I had to convince my head of department to let me do it because, of course, the metrics are strong. People don't want you to move. But I wanted to, to do something else. And that was the best change because although it was the same grade, so there was no kind of um, promotional aspects involved in it, I met a, a whole set of different teams that I'd never worked with before. We had lots of variations on the programs, which we didn't have on standard undergraduates. So I learned lots of different things about the workings of the university and all of that knowledge of doing these different roles that I've done have exposed me to things that in the next role have made me more competent because I understand the, the details. I do sometimes think, you know, will it be looked on not very favourably that I've stayed at the university for a long time? Um, but it can be quite hard to get promoted internally because there's nowhere to hide. <laughs> you can't pretend yeah. at all you can't make your, a claim your, re your reputation precedes itself yeah. doesn't it yeah, yeah when absolutely. I had my interview for this job you know there was nothing I could I couldn't overclaim because everybody knew so mm. it's quite difficult to get promoted internally so I kind of think well maybe that would you know if I did, did ever decide to look for an external position um, 
maybe that would count in my favour. But I also think, you know, the the to be competent in your role, then actually the experience you get from staying somewhere is helpful. And to be honest, you know, I love working here. <laughs> I genuinely think I'm very well supported. I've had loads of opportunities. Um, my family live nearby my husband's works nearby there's there's no driver for me to leave because I feel as if all of the things that are important to me are more than satisfied so I'd only be moving for the sake of it Um, there's been times when I've been unhappy and I've struggled and you know various when I've had I have had poor leadership of me sometimes but but things things change people other people move on and you know periods that you think I'm not really enjoying it at the moment. They come to an end. Yeah. And then it gets better and you go through these waves. And so it's, sometimes it's just being true to yourself. I keep my head down. I keep trying to do my work. I try to stay out of politics of stuff. Um, again, are, it's difficult when you've been here a long time. <laughs> that's right. There are very few people who would say that they've never had any issues in a role. And you know, I think what you're saying there is is that it's that there's lots of opportunities within a large organisation, yeah. um, and is to look for those because sometimes the easy option is to think I'll move elsewhere. You know, the grass is always greener on the other side, isn't it? There's always that saying there. So, but if you're happy and you can see opportunities, it's a really good thing to to I, go for. I have been very fortunate. Um, you know, there is some luck I think in Korea. So, when I went on maternity leave, there was a restructure. That restructure meant that the the role I was doing where I said I was professional commercial programs leader, that role disappeared um, because they introduced kind of a consistent structure and the department I was in was the only one that had that role. So it went and I became deputy head. So had that restructure not happened, you know, I would and they, I wouldn't have been moved into the deputy head position potentially. And then had they appointed externally, I didn't apply for the head of department job internally or externally. Had they appointed, had it just been that they'd have got a candidate in, I wouldn't have got that position. And so actually, you know, there are just times when you're in the right stage of your career and an opportunity comes along. And I guess I am quite good at saying yes to things, even perhaps a bit too much sometimes. (laughs) But um, so there is some luck, I would say, as well. But equally, I guess people look for other roles when they don't feel that they're supported into roles in their own organisation. And I've always felt that I've been invested, people have invested in my development. I've had mentoring from, you know, within and outside the university. And I've had people here really kind of encouraging me to go for the next thing and, you know, apply for a professor, for example. I never would have thought I would ever put pen to paper for a professor application, let alone get it. So, but that was an internal, you know, that was a conversation internally of people senior helping me to think that I potentially I could do that. There is some luck in that, but then I suppose, you know, it has also been said that if you work hard, (laughs) you get more lucky. But timing sometimes has just been fortuitous and that's meant that I've had that experience just by the fact that that job came up Mm. and, you know, I was asked to do it. You mentioned about a mentor. Um, so how did you go about getting a mentor within the business? You said both inside and outside the organisation. What did you do to get that support? And, um, and what benefit has it been to you? Oh, I, I, I think everybody should have mentors and coaches. Why? Oh, it's such a safe space. 
and um, you know it's the one place where you can really kind of open up I think and talk about the difficulties you're having and not think someone's going to think you're weak or you can't do it um, so I've had informal mentors right from the very beginning I guess at the time I wouldn't have thought of them as mentors it's now when you look back you think they were mentoring me then I when I became head of department I was given a coach that was really helpful because um, I had a lot of anxieties when I became the head a lot I mean I was an economist I was in accounting finance banking um, because that's where the professional and commercial programs role was and restructures meant economics moved out of that department but I stayed so I was you know I'm thinking I'm an economist in an accounting finance banking department so I'm neither accounting and finance nor banking <laughs> how am I going to you know get people to feel that they want me to be their leader and I didn't know anyone particularly in the sector and I was conscious that I wanted to represent the department as best I could but you know so that coach really helped me understand what values I was bringing how to build my teams how to engage with people um and I tried to make it super collaborative and then I built my networks um outside then when I became no while I was still head I had a mentor who was the dean of the business school from here from a number of years ago the best person like I couldn't believe that she would mentor me <laughs> um and she's just the most enthusiastic positive supportive she really you know made me believe in myself as a head and um she helped me start to ask for things and be a bit more um, confident about talking up the department and asking for money for things, which I was really bad at. We would try and do things within the envelope that we had, and maybe that's the economist in me, <laughs> as efficiently as possible. But she, you know, she would help me get used to asking for more staffing and, and competing against other departments for resource. So then we started to bring in much many more staff, and we started to spend money on initiatives, on the educational initiatives, because... You know, I was able to get the confidence to start putting business cases forward and defend them without worrying that people would think it was greedy. <laughs> I used to think it would be perceived badly if I was asking for things, um, which is really naive when I look back. But, you know, that was, that was my mindset. But then I've had informal people. So the best advice I ever had off a mentor um, was to create some space for myself when I needed it. And some of that is about being honest about the fact that I needed space. So when I was, um, my daughter Millie is um, conceived through IVF or ICSI. It's, that is a really difficult thing to go through when you um, you have quite a lot of appointments at very short notice, and it can give the impression that you're either very disengaged with work because you're suddenly a bit flaky, or you're looking for a job somewhere else, or that you're poorly. You know, people, because you suddenly behaviour shifts. You know, I was always at work and, you know, super committed, all these things. And so then that would worry me. People are going to start thinking either I'm sick or I don't care anymore or I'm looking for another job. And um, so the best advice that I had for me, and I this wouldn't be right for everybody going through um, anything, but was basically to tell some people that that's what was happening and then that would create, they wouldn't ask questions and they wouldn't make assumptions and they would just know, but they would, you know, also leave me alone. So um, for me and my husband, we both took that approach then and it was it was really hugely helpful to me because people didn't 
um, ask me things all the time, but also I knew they knew where I was. So when I needed to say, actually, I can't come in tomorrow because I've got to go to an appointment, that was fine. There was no questions. So I think that advice of just telling some people when I need some space for, for my own personal things or was really good. Because, and I try and do that now. You know, just sometimes if I, if I just need to be doing something that's perhaps in my private life, is just tell a couple of people that otherwise might start to ponder or wonder. Um, and again, I guess you have to work in the right environment to be able to do that. But that's really good advice. Final question. Let's go back to you in your undergraduate self. Okay, same organisation, but you're a, an undergraduate. What advice would you give yourself knowing what you know now? Oh, I should definitely tell younger me to stop worrying about what people think. My goodness, like what a waste of time. <laughs> I think the most liberating thing when you get older is just suddenly thinking, I just actually don't care. <laughs> Not, you know, I do worry. I do make sure I'm nice to people. But I think ultimately, if I, if I am trying to, if I'm working hard uh, academically back then or now in my job, I'm treating people the way I would like to be treated and considerate of them and trying to do my best, then actually if other people don't like me, but I feel I've done everything possible, I have to just not worry about that. But honestly, when I was younger, that was just, that would tear me apart. I worried so much about what people thought, which is I think why I wouldn't admit that I really enjoyed learning because, you know, that wasn't what you did. You, you, you didn't like school. Um, so that would be definite advice to me to not worry about what people think. And then the other thing I think is kind of to back myself a bit more. I think I, I would play things down quite a lot. So, you know, what I wanted to do or how much I understood about doing something, I'd, I'd, I'd not play dumb because I didn't ever play dumb, but I think I wouldn't necessarily speak up when I knew answers or I had suggestions on how things could be done because I didn't, I just... I didn't want to kind of come across as being bossy or, um, I don't know, I just always wanted to be the quiet one in the corner <laughs> and just not really have attention to me and um, not, not, not for people to not realise that kind of I, I, would, I would have ideas on how things could be done differently. So I kept quite quiet and I think actually I could have contributed loads more at uni if I'd have just backed myself a little bit more and not worried what people thought um, and had a bit more confidence and haven't got any confidence now. <laughs> I've still got, like, I still have people tell me all the time, which is why I do think mentors are so important about being confident. And I know from the outside, people will think I'm hugely confident and they'll look at things that I've achieved. And I, 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 I know that if I looked at another female who, you know, was in my position, I would think that, but... I don't know, I think we're all racked with self-doubt and concerns and I don't know what I'm going to do next and I'm going to get found out at some point. <laughs> I think there are, there are many people in that situation that uh, we realise and certainly in talking to them. But interesting that you want to be the quiet one in the corner to being the dean of the business school. I know, but even now, you know, I want to do a really good job so that I don't draw attention to myself or anything other than the business school doing really well. Like, I don't like attention on me. Um, it's everyone else yeah, that you want is. the attention for. Yeah, yeah, absolutely that. I think it's fair to say that Hannah does not match the traditional image of a professor. 
It was fascinating to learn about how you can establish a career in higher education and progress within it, not just within a teaching environment, but also within senior leadership roles. I also valued her honesty about how she dealt with those sensitive personal issues that most of us face when juggling a personal life with a working life. It was IVF in her case, if you remember. I found that particularly inspiring. Thanks to Hannah for her contribution to this series. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your pods from. You can leave feedback about the episode in various social media channels by searching for Half Hour Mentor. Links to Hannah's LinkedIn profile and to the business school itself can be found in the show notes. My thanks go to Manchester Metropolitan University Business School for sponsoring this series and allowing the episodes to be ad-free. Thanks for joining us and until next time, bye for now. Thank you.